So um, I wanted to give you just a little bit of a preview. Next week, I'm going to uh, take a break from our sermon series, and I'm going to talk about politics for a week. Uh, Don't worry, I won't be espousing a certain candidate or anything. In fact, probably a lot of you already voted. So um, that's not anything we'll ever do. We won't ever back a specific candidate or get into any political discussion that leads you towards one side or the other. But I want to talk about uh, politics in the divisive world that we live in and what it looks like to be a Christian uh, even when our side wins or loses. Okay, and so we're going to talk about that next week so you can kind of Look forward to that. Maybe we'll talk about finances and politics in the same, you know, a service, and then you'll really get the trifecta or the, or the, I don't know, I'll figure something else to make it a trifecta. But this week, we're continuing in our Down to Earth series, and uh, last two weeks, we have worked on uh, two concepts that we believe our kingdom-minded uh, people will put, will use in their life and live out on an everyday basis. The first one was that we are big K kingdom people. We care much more about the kingdom of God outside of just the, the small piece that we get to own and be part of at Pursuit. Uh, last week, we talked about how we are gospel-focused, that as Christians, we should be willing to share the gospel, be interested in understanding it fully, and be uh, interested in guiding other people into it. Uh, and today, I'm going to talk about a concept that I think uh, is, can make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, okay, and so I just... I want to preface this by saying um, I believe what we're going to look at today is something that is highly lacking in our world uh, in general, and I believe Christians very, really struggle with this concept quite a bit. Um, and we're going to talk today about um, sacrifice, sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. There it is, sacrifice. Um, and I want to start just with a, a story. I was, uh, I was thinking back about my own life and the summer of 2001. Can I take you back to the summer of 2001? Some of you weren't born yet, okay? So, uh, yeah, you can't go back to that summer. But the summer of 2001, I was uh, switching colleges. I was going from the University of Connecticut, where I was in the business program, to uh, Nyack College, which was a college in New York, where I was going to now turn my focus from a business degree to a youth ministry degree. Um, I wanted to go there and work on a youth ministry degree and be a youth pastor. And so that summer, I thought, you know, this is like one of the only summers where I'm not going to try to be doing an internship for business or trying to further. I want to actually take this summer off and do ministry. And so I signed up to be a camp counselor at Lakeside Christian Camp in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I think every Christian should do at least one summer where they're on staff at a camp um, We have a great camp that's part of our denomination. Trout Lakes is an excellent one. We actually had Leah there last summer, who was amazing. We also work along with some other camps in the area that I could get you in touch with. Uh, It was a fantastic summer. Uh, When I showed up at camp, they told me that I was going to be co-teaching the drama class for campers. Now listen, I am a dramatic person. That's true uh, in general. But I didn't want to teach the drama class. I was kind of like, hey, I have technology gifts. I can do photography. I can do video, video editing. I can do sports. Can I do something else other than teach the drama class? For me, it was kind of like a bummer. But you know what? I felt like God was moving in me and said, hey, you can be a servant. They tell you to go and teach the drama class. You can do this. Um, I had been in 
exactly zero productions. Um, there is one in my history that I never want anyone to find the tape on. Let's just put it that way. And that's it. I didn't know what I was doing. I barely knew anything. And I showed up to this drama class, and my co-teacher was a beautiful young woman who I instantly fell in love with and adored. Her name was Marty. Uh, And so I'd like to tell you that me taking a servant's heart led me to a place where I met my wife. But I spent the entire summer courting Marty. I went out of my way to come up with ways to delight her every day. I, uh, hi, Marty, in the back, how are you? Um, She's like, you didn't, okay. Um, I went out of my way to win her, and I am the kind of person, I don't know how you won your spouse or or were won by your spouse, but I'm the kind of person that kind of wears you down, not actually does anything to, uh, to impress you, so I just continued to just work. I wanted her to know how much I cared about her, and by the end of the summer, uh, we were going steady. Is that the way that we call it today? We were dating. We actually went on one date at the end of the summer, and I can remember that we went to Applebee's, and that Marty got salmon, honey glazed salmon. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I remember that detail. And, uh, and we split ways at the end of that summer, and our romance was going to continue on. However, I was going to be in New York, and she was going to be in Boston at our schools. And we were both going to be there for the rest of our time in school, and I knew it was going to be at least a minimum of two and a half years where we were going to be separated. So I got to school, a new, brand new place. I hadn't been there before. And I settled in, and I realized very quickly that a long-term relationship that was going to be that far apart, about uh, from college to college was about five hours apart, I realized this was not going to work for me. Uh, because what it took in 2001 to have a long-term relationship was essentially um, over an hour on the phone just about every single day to where you could connect, and that was uh, honestly the only way that we could... Now, we didn't have FaceTime, we, we had email, and we had phones. And so I would call her up after 9 o'clock when my phone was free, anyone out there who remembers those days, and I would spend an hour on the phone with her when I wanted to be playing video games and I wanted to be uh, hanging out with friends and I wanted to be uh, probably not doing homework yet. I didn't really start that normally till midnight. Um, I wanted to be doing things and having fun and I always had to stop and get on a telephone and talk for an hour. And even though I loved Marty, it was, it was tough to talk. on. Now, does anyone here like actually like talking on the phone? I think I was ahead of the curve on that one because we have an entire generation of people who are terrified to talk on the phone, who don't want to take phone calls. I don't know if you've been receiving phone calls from political candidates. I get like four or five a day. Um, I only pick them up when I feel like messing with someone, honestly. Um, And so I just didn't feel like this was going to work because my love language was touch and she was five hours away and I didn't want to talk on the phone and I thought I need to go and break up with her as quickly as possible so that we don't drag this out and, and, and hurt ourselves even more. So I got in my car and I drove to Boston five hours away and I was convinced that I was going to go and break up with Marty on the way. And I was working my way up. How am I going to talk about this? This is going to be awkward because I'm staying until Sunday. How's that going to work? Um, this is, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I got up there and I knocked on her door and she opened her door and I was like, you're an idiot. What are you doing, moron? You can't break up with her. She's amazing. You'll never do better than her. She's incredible. You're stupid. 
you need to figure this out. And so I spent the entire weekend kind of in that tension of like, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And by the time I left, I was committed to saying, no matter what it takes, I'm staying in this relationship with this woman because she's amazing. And I went home and then everything that I did to connect us five hours apart, sending funny emails during the day, calling her at night, sending her stuff in the mail to her college, writing her notes, all of those things went from being uh, work, something that I didn't really want to do or didn't feel like was worth my time, uh, to something that I actually enjoyed and loved and really looked forward to. The, the sacrifice went from something that was painful and annoying to something that was, sorry, don't let me hit the TV, uh, something that was great, something that I had joy in doing. And I want you to know as we talk today about, about the kingdom of God, is that as Christians, we are called to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And honestly, if I were just going to stand up here and tell you the things that you need to sacrifice for God's kingdom, sometimes it can feel like work. It can feel like something that you don't necessarily want to do or look forward to doing. Right? But when your, your, uh, your conception of God's kingdom changes to being somebody who is 100% all in and committed to the kingdom, those things that seemed like work in the beginning becomes something that brings you joy, something that you love to do, something that's worth it for you to put the effort in and to go for. Uh, And so today, I want to pick us up where we left off. We were in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm just going to go forward to starting with verse uh, 42, and we're going to be in, sorry, 44, and we're going to be in the end of the chapter, 44 to 52, Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus, again, to give you context, he's traveling around... uh, There's a lot of towns where people are kind of starting to follow him. And everywhere he goes, these crowds are following him around. And he's finding himself teaching about the the kingdom. Chapter 13 is about the kingdom from beginning to end. It's, It's all parables. And it's all his main teachings on the kingdom of God. And so as we get to 44, he turns and he goes with a few shorter parables that teach us about sacrifice. Sacrifice for the kingdom. Okay, and so I'm picking up with verse 44. This is what he says. The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking to a crowd of people. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. So he tells us a parable that is essentially one, two sentences long, one verse in your, in your Bible. Right? He tells us a parable that is so short and sweet that it's teaching us something about the kingdom of God in just a very small. He's already talked about the seed that falls upon the path and, you know, in the rocky soil. We talked about that last week. And then there's a section right after that where he talks about a farmer that plants a field and then there's weeds that pop up in the field and how they take away the weeds at the end and they burn the weeds and then they, they take harvest the crop. And he's talking about the kingdom there. And then he gets onto this and he starts to talk about this. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this field where someone stumbled over a treasure, reburied it, went and sold everything they have, came back, bought the field, and did this in joy. Like to them, the sacrifice was worth it. And there are two ways that we can interpret this passage. In fact, um, to be honest with you, I think you'd be okay interpreting it both ways, but I prefer one. So I'll tell you both, and I'll tell you which one I prefer. I think you could look at this and you could say, uh, the person who found the treasure and hit it again and bought the field could be, 
could be Jesus. You could look at this and you could say, this is what Jesus did. He sold everything. He gave up his life so that he could create the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in our lives. He went and basically sold everything to receive the treasure of the kingdom of God, okay? I don't prefer that interpretation. What I think this is saying is that we are the man who found the treasure hidden in the field. And the reason I think that is because uh, right here where it says, when a man found it, right, it actually uh, leads us to the idea that he stumbled upon it without really searching for it. Okay, if this were talking about Jesus, he would have known it was there and he wouldn't have stumbled upon it by accident. Okay, and so in the original language, it leads us to think it was a regular person walking around without looking for it, who tripped over it in a field, who dug it up, who found it, and then went and changed their life. I believe we are the man and the treasure is the kingdom of God. Now this also is in the chapter where Jesus is talking about the kingdom from beginning to end, and it goes along with the other stories where he's using this same kind of language and terminology for us to get there. And what he says here is that the kingdom is so valuable in our lives that we would be willing to give up anything to have it. But this man went and sold all that he had so that he could have the kingdom of God. And I want you to know that kingdom-minded people sacrifice because of the value of God's kingdom. And for them, when they do sacrifice, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. For them, they see the value of the kingdom of God and they say, whatever it takes for me to receive this, I will give. Now, I understand that's tough. I think a lot of times in today's age, in the spiritual nature of our world, what we have is a lot of Christians who would prefer not to sell everything to receive the kingdom of God. They would prefer not to sacrifice everything. And so we have a lot of Christians who mix this concept of sacrificing for the kingdom along with sort of serving themselves at the same time, okay? The all-in nature of what Jesus is talking about is very clear, that it takes all of you, all aspects of your life, that you should be willing to sacrifice every piece of what it means to be a human in order to receive the kingdom of God because you understand the value of the kingdom. Jesus asks us for complete devotion. Now this is uncomfortable because often this spills into things that we don't want to give up to Christ. He tells us to live a certain way, to speak a certain way, to act a certain way, to treat others in a certain way, to love a certain way, to give financially in a certain way, to give ourselves the gifts that we have in a specific way. There are places in our lives where we have sin that's crept in and gotten a stronghold that we don't want to give away. There are things in our lives that we do to medicate ourselves that we don't want to let Jesus into that place. There are relationships in our lives that we'd rather not put together, put back together, or have reconciliation that Jesus would call us to if he were in charge of that area. There are places in our lives where we say, Yes, Jesus, I love you, but no, not that thing. Now, I want you to know, as a Christian, there's a process, okay? So I'm not telling you that you're an evil person if you haven't let Jesus into every aspect of your life, okay? Because we're all on a a journey to becoming who Christ has called us to be. But if you ever get to a place where you feel like you have uh, arrived, or that you feel like you've solved all the issues in your life where they're not in line 
with Christ, I want you to know there's always more. Sacrifice is one of those things where there's always another place that we can tackle, that we can challenge ourselves on, that we can grow in, that we can become more like who Christ has called us to be. There's always somewhere where we can grow. And if you feel like you can't grow anymore, you feel like you sacrificed enough for the kingdom, then I don't think you're getting the concept of this parable. Kingdom-minded people sacrifice because of the value of God's kingdom. And we're called to do it throughout our whole life and in every area. We're called to sell everything so that we can be part of and, and have the treasure of God's kingdom in our life. It calls for an all-in, and it calls for a complete sacrifice. And you're like, thanks a lot, buddy. I don't feel comfortable. Just wait. It gets worse. Okay. Uh, we'll go on to the next verse. He says, kingdom, and this one really is about the exclusivity of God's kingdom. Kingdom-minded people are motivated by the exclusivity of God's kingdom. Look at these two verses. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Now, the difference between these two people is pretty simple. One stumbles upon a treasure in a field, was not looking for it. One is a merchant who is spending his life looking for amazing pearls that he can then sell and make a profit on. Okay, so one is seeking it and one is not seeking it. These are two different people. And I want you to know the gospel finds its way into people's lives, whether or not they are seeking it, whether or not they are looking for it. I think a lot of us, we are looking for something. We are trying out things that we base our life on. A lot of us are trying different ways to feel better about who we are and to feel like we're successful people and to feel like we have something to give to the world. And there are worldviews out there, plenty of them, right, that people try all the time. Some of them have some value. There are all kinds of things we can learn from other ways of living, other worldviews, other, even other religions. There are things that we can learn from some of those, those religions. But when this merchant found the one pearl, the one, he knew it immediately. He had spent his life looking at every single other pearl that in existence, and some were great, and some had some shine to them, or some iridescent nature, or I don't know anything about pearls, I'm guessing, or were perfectly white, or whatever. But when he found the one, he knew that it was the one. Jesus is telling us that there is only one version out there that will satisfy, that there's an exclusivity to his gospel, that there isn't many things that will satisfy, but there's one. And that's why we're able to sacrifice everything and go all in. So he says, one guy tripped over a treasure in a field, sold everything he had to get it. And then one guy was looking for this treasure and found it and then sold everything. But either way, when the kingdom of God is presented to you, it's either like the treasure in the field or it's like the perfect pearl you've been looking for your whole life. It is the solution that we're looking for. And it is worth sacrificing for. Jesus is telling us there's only one version of this that ends in the right place. There's only one pearl. And I know that's an unpopular thing to say today because 
you may have heard all over the place that, you know, all these religions lead to the same place. Or you may have heard, you know what, this worldview and that worldview, these things are equal. They're just different ways of looking at the same thing. If you flip it over this way, it looks like this. And you flip it over this way, it looks like this. And Jesus would say, absolutely not true. There is one way to heaven. There is one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ. You would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one pearl out there, and it's the only one worth sacrificing for. Kingdom-minded people are motivated by the exclusivity of God's kingdom. We're motivated to grab hold of that. We're also motivated to share that with other people because we know the importance of it. So kingdom-minded people are motivated by the exclusivity of God's kingdom. And he goes on a little further And this is where it gets really great. You're like, thanks, Jesus, for this really uplifting parable that you end with here. Kingdom-minded people understand what is at stake. Look what he says in the next verse. Once again, okay, gave you the first two. Let me give you the third. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. People nowadays are looking at that. They're going, this is great. Yeah, that's exactly right. All kinds of fish get into the kingdom. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. And when they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but they threw away the bad. And let me interject for a second here. Um, I'm, I'm not Jewish, so, you know, understand exactly what's happening here. There's a disconnect from the first century and from Judaism that Christians, when they read this, they don't necessarily understand. Jews were not allowed to eat every fish. Every fish in the Sea of Galilee is not something that you can eat. There were 24 types of fishes in the Sea of Galilee, as far as we can tell. Some of them were not edible. For instance, there were uh, eels, can't eat, part of the kosher diet laws for Jews. Uh, Some rabbis wouldn't let you eat catfish. Um, They weren't allowed to eat anything that um, was like um, shrimp or lobster. I don't know what the crustacean, whatever, something. They weren't allowed to eat any of those. So if they got caught in the net, the Jews would quickly grab all the ones that they could eat and put them aside and they would cast out all the ones that they can't eat. This was a normal practice. So he was telling them something that they were all familiar with doing. If you trolled a huge net, you were going to catch some stuff that you couldn't eat as a, as a God-fearing, Torah-following Jewish person. And so he says, but they threw the bad away. He continues on. This is how it'll be at the end of the age. Oh, man, Jesus, come on here. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. They'll throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That got real dark, real quick, Jesus. Um, You know what's interesting? Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the exclusivity of the kingdom of God, he generally has some sort of version of this concept in there. He talks about the sheep and the goats, and he says the sheep will go this way, the goats will go this way, these guys go to an eternal damnation and fire, and these ones get to be with Jesus forever. Right? He talks about um, in, in other situations that there's a road that leads to destruction and it's everyone's on that road and we're all passively moving towards destruction. But a few people get onto a path that leads to a gate that goes to everlasting life with the Father. Right? He, he paints a picture of there being sort of a divergent way where there are two options. One is you're a fish that gets put into the basket and kept and one is you're a fish that gets tossed back in And in this situation, he goes to the point of saying, a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says there will be sadness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, anger for people who aren't all in, who aren't in on the exclusivity of Jesus. Now, I'm not a preacher who likes to preach brimstone, fire, 
fear. I don't want to use emotion to play on people and to motivate them to receive the gospel. But Jesus' words teach us that there's a very real consequence to not receiving the kingdom, not being part of it, not being in on the exclusivity of it, in letting other things define who we are or going halfway in on it and finding ourselves not really there completely. The kingdom-minded people understand what is at stake. We understand what's at stake for ourselves, and we also understand what's at stake for people around us. And I get it. This might be the hardest all-in there is. Actually engaging other people with the gospel right now is worse than opening up your checkbook and sacrificing your money. Engaging people with the gospel sometimes for us feels worse than uh, working in the children's ministry if we decide that we need to give of our talents and gifts to the church. Uh, Engaging people with the gospel sometimes feels worse to us than uh, going all in by actually being at church on a regular basis and in community and in a small group. These things, they are part of what it means to sacrifice for the kingdom but we would rather not engage other people with the gospel because we live in a world that says, hey, you do you and I'll do me. Hey, you believe what you want and I'll believe what I want. And to be honest with you, in some ways, that's not bad. I wish we applied that to our politics, but not our religion. Because if we believe that Jesus is the only way that he's called us to live all in and he's called us to sacrifice for his kingdom, then it calls us to understand what is at stake, which is both uh, being with Jesus forever for ourselves and being with Jesus forever for other people around us. Understanding what is at stake is part of what it means to be a kingdom-minded person. So he calls his followers, and you have to put yourself in the the shoes of the people listening to him. There was a crowd. They had pushed him out in a boat. He was speaking to a crowd from the lake. These people were listening to him talk about the kingdom, and they were in the crowd all over the place. In this crowd were probably very religious Pharisees, right? People that were worked in the temple, that knew all the scripture, that were there, you know, trying to figure out what Jesus was all about. And there were also probably people who were very irreligious, Maybe they, weren't, they didn't grow up with all the, the trappings of what it means to be a religious person. And he was speaking to both of these types of people, trying to help them find themselves in the story. One of the reasons why he used parables so much was so that everyone could find themselves in the story. He calls those who are kingdom-minded to understand what's at stake, and he warns those who aren't kingdom-minded to understand what is at stake. He finishes up the section by talking to the disciples. He says this in verse 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, yes. (laughs) It's very clear that actually they didn't understand all these things. If you read Mark's version of this, he actually throws the disciples under the bus. He says they walk away very confused. Matthew is a little bit more uh, kind to them. Uh, where he just basically says, they say yes, a one-word answer to which I wish I had the context of them like looking around and going, yeah, we get it, right? Do you guys get it? I get it. I think we get it. I'm pretty sure. Do we get it? Yeah, I think we get it, they replied. And then Jesus finished up with this last verse. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom 
of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his, of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Jesus tells them, and he's speak, speaking specifically, I think, when he says every teacher of law. Remember, this is Matthew teaching this. Matthew would uh, become someone who was a little bit like a scribe. He was, the scribes during that day and age were people who explained the scriptures to the people. We see scribes all throughout scripture. They understood the, the, the scripture and they were out there basically telling people, hey, here's what it means. Let me give you context. Let me help you understand it. In this case, Matthew is writing this down for people and trying to do that job. So when he says, therefore, every teacher of law who's become a disciple, this includes Matthew who's writing this book, okay? Who's writing this, this thing. Uh, is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And you have to understand what Jesus was doing. He was saying, you guys thought it was a certain way, you know, you understood the Old Testament, but now there's going to be a new way that comes along. We're going to mix old with new, and we're going to create a new thing called the kingdom of God, that it's actually going to probably push everyone outside of their comfort zone. To those of you who were absolutely sold on just the old, it's going to push you to allow in the new. For those of you who are sold on just the new, it's going to push you to go back and say, this is built on the foundation of the old. And those of you who feel like you are a disciple of the kingdom are going to have to mix new and old. And I think even today, what we're called to do is to bring the gospel into culture. We're we're called to bring the gospel into people's lives, to make it make sense to people, to encourage people to find themselves in it. So to use the same principles that Jesus did, when he told stories, he was allowing people to find themselves in it. When Matthew was writing this book, he was trying to help people understand the new and the old and how they worked together. We even now take what is an old concept, Jesus' kingdom, and now we're trying to merge it with the new around us to bring it into the culture so people can understand it. Not change it, but bring it into a place where people can wrap their, their heads around it. I believe that we are called to understand what is actually at stake as Christians. That we see ourselves as people who are willing to sacrifice for the gospel and to give up our comfort so that we can communicate the gospel to other people. I know that we live in a world where people don't want to hear what it is that we have to say about Christ. And so sometimes it means that we're looking for those openings. Not that we're pushing ourselves on people. That we're, you know, we're also called to live at peace with the world around us. But that we understand what's at stake. And when the opportunity comes, we're ready to communicate the gospel. That we get it. We understand that if we don't have it in our own lives, we need to sacrifice for it. And if other people don't have it in their own lives, that they need to sacrifice for it. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we felt like we could have done more, that we have regrets. You know, during COVID, there's been a couple of situations in our personal life. Uh, me, me and Marty, we've lost two grandparents during this time. Uh, two people that we had relationships with, two people in our family, two people that we knew were getting closer to the end of their life. You know, I had a, a grandmother who lived in California. I wasn't able to be at the funeral. I wasn't able to uh, be with other family. I wasn't able to console my mom. I go back and I think about my relationship with my grandmother, which was distant. I don't think I had a very good relationship with her. I didn't really know her very well. I didn't really engage her with the gospel. And she 
passed away over the last couple months during COVID. I wasn't able to go out. I wasn't able to see her before she passed. I knew the time was coming. There wasn't much I could do. And I want you to know, as she passed away and as I was processing my own uh, relationship with her, I felt like I should have done more. I think when she passed, she didn't understand the gospel fully. Her grandson was a pastor who knew what was at stake. And yet I wasn't able to bridge the gap to have the conversation with her to help her cross the line of faith before she passed away. I know my mom got to go and spend a week with her and spend time with her. And I know she also tried to communicate the gospel. And I hope that when I someday get to heaven, that what my mom said to her made the difference. But when we understand what's at stake, we realize that if we don't act and if we don't go all in and if we don't sacrifice, that there are only regrets left at the end of that road. Because Jesus is really clear. Like this is life or death. Life leads to an eternity with Christ in bliss. I mean, best possible scenario ever. And without the gospel, without those, you know, without that being part of your life, without you understanding it and putting it into practice, it leads to separation from God in eternity and a situation you'd never want to find yourself in. Gospel-minded people are not jerks. They just understand what's at stake. And we're not willing to let it go. We're going to keep coming back and keep sharing the gospel and keep looking for opportunities to share with people. And if we lose that, then we've missed out on the kingdom. So the question I would ask myself at the end of really looking at this is, one, is there somewhere in my life that I need to continue to sacrifice to give more to understand the kingdom more fully in my life? Is there a place where I need to let Jesus in to change the way that I think, the way that I act? Is there a place that I need to let Jesus lead me and guide me in how I I operate in a certain area or a place that I didn't want to invite him into? And then I would ask, do I understand what's at stake and am I sharing the gospel in a way that helps other people find their way into the kingdom? I look at the world around us and I see a lot of opportunity. I see people afraid. I see people struggling to figure out what normal looks like. I see people who are on shaky ground all over the place in their life. And they are looking for something to build their life on that is a foundation that lasts. And we know what it is. We have it. Many of us have sold everything to receive the treasure of the kingdom of God. The question is, with the people struggling all around us, are we helping them find that truth in their life so that they can have the best possible life now and the best possible life in the future so that they can live free from the fear that comes along with the world that we live in or free from the anxiety that comes along with the world that we live in, understanding that their life is built on something eternal. I think Jesus is calling us to understand that this is the core of what it means to be a kingdom-minded person, to share and grow that kingdom with everyone in our lives. Will everyone respond to the kingdom? No, definitely not. But we understand what's at stake and we continue to persevere. Will you pray with me?
Jesus, would you even now bring people to mind that you've been working on, that you've been moving, that you've been getting ready to respond to your kingdom? Would you show us who that person is, who those people are, who that group of people are? God, we ask for um, a continued heart to sacrifice for your kingdom. And we ask for those eyes that help us see the people that you are drawing in. God, I pray that you would use us in the midst of a world that is just broken all around us that we would be pointing towards the one way to know God, the one way to have that foundation of eternal significance, the one way for us to live free from uh, the fear and anxiety and difficulties of this world, to understand what it means to know you and to follow you. God, I pray for that clarity in the lives uh, of us as believers and that you would show us what it looks like to live that out and to share that with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.